welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. So I spoke at a fundraiser uh, for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I got involved with those good folks. And I spoke for the first time publicly about my brothers. And it was awful. Five minutes, it was brutal. And I got through it. And I sat down and afterwards, a lady came up to me and said, you need to tell that story more often. And I said, oh, you just heard the one and done show. <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> but God kept saying, you know, maybe there's something here. Like in everybody who's listening to your crucible moment, maybe something's in there. Don't waste the pain. Don't waste That's the lesson this week's guest, Dennis Gillen, learned when he took his tentative first steps as a suicide prevention speaker, as a man whose two brothers took their own lives 11 years apart. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Gillen shares the devastation he experienced in the aftermath of his brother's suicides, but also the strength and hope he's found by embracing what he's discovered is the call on his life to inspire others to not waste the pain of their own crucibles. He offers several practical tips on how to use your pain as fuel for a life of significance. The one you want to make extra sure you listen for? The Purple Fire. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for what you do as an advocate for mental health, and uh, obviously you've experienced the challenges and the tragedies that have led you to your calling and what you do with Half a Sorrow Foundation and uh, the Purple File, which we'll get to, which is such a a brilliant uh, idea. So before we get to really the, the tragedies, in a sense, that have sadly changed your life, uh, in many ways with your brothers, which we'll get into. Uh, tell us a bit about what was life for you growing up? You know, tell us about your family, your brothers. What was, before the tragedies hit, what what was your family life and what was, you know, what was life like in the Gillen household? Life was good until it wasn't. <laughs> you know, that's a, <laughs> you know, second generation we, uh, Irish guy, uh, all my grandparents came in to Brooklyn, New York. So that's where my parents were. So I was born in Brooklyn. And then like many folks of that era, my dad chasing the American dream uh, here, he moved out to the suburbs and, you know, the, the house, you know, the little spit of land. And we, we ended up north of New York city because my dad worked in the city in a little town called Valley Cottage, New York. It's right on the Hudson river, Hudson Valley. Uh, maybe 30 miles north of New York City uh, in a little town, Valley Cottage in the county of Rockland. So it's near the Tappan Zee Bridge. If anyone knows that area, that's where I grew up. And it was, you know, what's the word? Idyllic. I, I never get that word right, but it was awesome because it was. I was one of five kids. We had 110 acres of woods behind us that wasn't developed yet. It's now since been developed, but it was like, there's a paradise. I lived near the local pool. There were tennis courts nearby. Uh, I walked to school. Everything I needed was in that little pod of Valley Cottage. And I loved being from a big family, five kids. You know, I'm in the middle. There's Sheila, Mark, me, and Janice and Matthew. 
and it was, you know, classic five, five people, uh, count my parents, seven, we had a three bedroom house. Everybody's crammed in there pretty good. You know, we start moving downstairs and making rooms downstairs. It was, it was really a great upbringing, you know, in memory, thank God for memory. Cause it's, it's very selective. You remember the good times. You tend to forget the bad times. It was really good. You know, I went to St. Paul's Catholic school. Then I went to the public high school. I have lifelong friends from both institutions. Um, to sum it all up, life in Valley Cottage was really good up until 1983. So you had an idyllic upbringing um, in this little town north of New York. Life just seemed to be good. It seemed like, you know, the, the world, uh, you know, anything could happen. You know, uh, you, know you could uh, continue the American dream of your dad. It's like life was good. And as you rightly put it, life was good until it was. And so tell us about... Um, I guess it was uh, Mark was was at the first. So tell us about that time and that day, and maybe a bit about who Mark was. You know, uh, sure. Mark was uh, Mark wasn't built for school. He was one of those tinkerers, one of those smart guys that was good at fixing stuff. But you put an academic, you put a book in front of him, it's not it's not going to end up well. And Mark's been on my heart lately because I went through my office recently, and I was just. I went through a divorce. So I have all this stuff everywhere. And I, I was going through my old high school uh, announcement when I graduated in 1981. Now, this is two years before we lost Mark. And on the back of it, they listed the people that graduated the previous summer. And my brother was one of them. He didn't graduate on time. He graduated in August 1980. I graduated in 1981. So he was on my program. And I, haven't, I did not know that until now. I looked at it like, oh, my gosh, Mark is on my program because he graduated later. Than he should have, because he wasn't a book guy. He was a tinkerer. You know, he, we had a garage full of stuff. He's he hooked up a CB radio, and that's an old radio for you kids out there that truckers used to use. He, he hooked up a CB radio to his Schwinn Varsity bike, and it ran on a generator that he wow. you know, huh. rigged up so he could talk and ride his bike on a CB. Like it was like, who thinks of that? You know, right? And, he, and that's how, that's the kind of guy he was. So I go off to college after 81 and I'm there 81, 82, 83. And that's, that's when the, the crucible moment number one hit um, the phone rang and it was my younger sister, Janice. And Janice says, Dennis, you need to come home. And it's a Wednesday and I, I'm, I'm eight hours away at West Virginia university. I'm the first kid to go away to university in my family. And um, like Janice, no, I'm exactly where I need to be. And then she told me Mark died in a car accident, which is not true. Um, Mark died in a car, but it was no accident. You all know why I'm here. And the audience is now going to get mm -hmm. you know, a little taste of what's in my life here. Uh, Mark died by suicide. Uh, he battled depression for years in the disease state one. So right smack in the beginning of my junior year, which is kind of technically the middle of my college experience. If you're, you're looking at four years, I'm into it. And this is October, and uh, I get that phone call, and I went home, and things were never the same after that. Before that happened, did you ever think that was possible? Did you or your family think, you know, Mark's a great guy, but he's battling, call it demons, call it challenges. Did you ever think this was a, a possibility? I think, like most people that age, he was looking for his place, looking for his tribe, so to speak, and I don't yeah. think he found it. There was um, one time, I think, when he he like ran away at an older age, like he's I'm out of here mm -hmm. and we didn't know where he was so yeah there was some inkling 
But when any time you're dealing with like a, a suicide or a traumatic event, you know, hindsight is 2020. When you're in it, mm-hmm. it's hard to see it. And you're like, hey, you know, you just ran, you'll get over this. You know, it's okay. You'll be fine. And, and the truth of the matter was, he wasn't fine. He was battling something that, you know, they call it the invisible illness. He, he, he didn't let us in. You know, some people tell that you know, let us in. What's going on? And um, looking back, there are signs. And now that I'm knee deep in the business of suicide prevention, look back and that one should have saw that one, could have caught that one. And it's brutal. It's brutal on you when you when you start thinking like that. The would have, the could have, the should have, and that's why a death by suicide is unlike any other because it's so much like, what could I have done? What could I have seen? Like if a, if Mark was driving along and a rock fell down a cliff and took him out, you'd be yeah. ah act of God, you know, just man, right. that's lousy timing, just terrible timing. Mm-hmm. He was in the highway at that moment, but with the suicide, it's it was, you know, it's planned out it was thought about it was it was he was the demons were strong and uh it got the best of them so that's as you rightly put it you know the uh obviously it's horrific for the the person but the family that's and friends that's left behind as you say it's easy to and you know you were a kid in college it's not like you had the knowledge you have now you know i mean you had maybe no knowledge or very little so, but it's easy to say, gosh, for your parents or your siblings, you know, couldn't we have seen this or that if we'd gotten him counseling, if we'd done this, that, and the other, but it's it's not obvious if you don't have that training. But So it's easy to objectively say, look, it's not your fault. It's it's fine, but it's probably a lot harder when you're in the midst of all of that and the emotions and you're not thinking clearly in terms of there's no way at that age I could possibly have known, Right. You don't think that way at the time. Not at all. And that age for me, and I'm not going to speak universally for many of us, but I was 20. And when you, when I was 20, I'll just speak about me. When I was 20, my life was all about me. I was the center of the universe. Uh, everything was me, 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 I, 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 you know. Uh, and I think one of the beautiful things about life, when you start living for others, you, you, you yourself dies and you start living to others. And that's where you... Uh, maybe it takes time, but so I, I'm always marvel at people that figure that out at an early age. It took me a long time to figure that one out. But at that time, 20, if I go back to 1983, I was just about Dennis having a good time. I was in a fraternity, social. It was all, how can I have the best life ever? Well, that, that's normal for kids in college or kids sure. at that age. I mean, so that's totally understandable. So that was obviously horrendous, but as we've mentioned, this wasn't the only tragedy. So, so how many? It was uh, how many years later that you got another phone call about yeah, your, you? Yeah, um, if we your fast forward brother, from eighty-three, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, Matthew, poor Matthew, eighty-three, lose Mark. Eleven years later, now I get out of college. Four years and eight weeks, I did a summer session. I'm out, mm-hmm. and I go back to New York, and I ended up uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, working for a pretty darn good company. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm working for Merck Pharmaceuticals, a big pharmaceutical company. I'm a sales rep. I got a great job, married, living in Carlisle. And I remember this day like it was yesterday, like just like Mark's phone calls, those crucible moments, you know exactly where you were when that happened. I was in, in Carlisle in my living room and the phone rang and, and poor Janice, it was Janice again. And to this day, and I would tease her about this, but to this day, when she calls, my heart skips a beat, you know, like, you know, is everything okay? Right. How's mom? Uh, you know, right. 
how are you? You know, she's like, Dennis, I'm fine. I'm just going to say hi. Hi. You know, but she told, she, she had the bad misfortune of telling me about Matthew. And in 1983, 1994, 11 years later, a decade and a year later, my younger brother, Matthew, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means, dies by right. suicide. And that's two. And one is awful, awful. And in the United States, we have 45,000, over 45,000 a year. Uh, they asked, yes, it's like 130 a day or some crazy number like that. You know, but, and you can do all the stats you want. It's mostly, uh, you know, white males, blah, 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 all this stuff. None of that means a hill of, you know, a hill of beans if it happens to you. And one, one is too many. And our family got struck by lightning twice. And it was awful. So when the, I mean, Mark was tough enough, but when Matthew happens, I mean, what were the emotions going on with you, your, I guess, sisters and parents? What was, I mean, there must have been uh, just uh, the level of grief, tragedy, anger must have been at a level that's hard to describe, I'm guessing. You know, it's just different when it's your little brother. I'm going to tear up thinking about this. Like, maybe I should have been looking out for him, you know, but I was too busy in my own little bubble. And I'll tell, you know, I'll tell him myself after Mark died, uh, you know, I was 20, I was already drinking a lot. And then I ramped it up another level, you know, to numb that pain. And then when Matthew died, I, I got drunk the night before we buried Matthew. And I remember driving back home and I went dark after Matthew died. I mean, really dark. I felt vulnerable. Um, for the first time in my life, I wasn't bulletproof. All the, the weight of the world was on me and I'm driving back and I'm like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I can't. I remember hugging somebody at my brother Matthew's funeral, hugging this dude and saying, I did this already. Like, I thought you just checked the box, you know, one and done. I said, I did this already. And when I got back to Carlisle, I was a mess. Um, happy to report that the night before when we buried Matthew, when I got drunk was the last time I've ever gotten drunk. So I'm over 27 years sober. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. I heard your story. You know, we all have our struggles. At that point, you know, it was just a good move for me. I was as low as I can be. Alcohol, I was depressed. And let's let's be honest, alcohol is a depressant, you know, <laughs> depressant. So do I need to put, you know, gasoline on this fire? I don't think so. The fire is kind of raging. So let's let it go. So I just decided to take a timeout and I'm happy to report the timeout is still lasting. And then I got a, like a God moment in there. My ex-wife and I were having a little trouble conceiving a child, and that was on our list. You know, we married, had the house, and next up is a, a kid, and we were having trouble. And and I made a little deal with God, and I don't recommend this for anyone. But I said, if we have a child, I'll never drink again. Martin's 26. I'm 27 years sober. Do the math. I'm a man of my word. I don't welch on my bets. A bet is a bet. God provided Martin. I'm sober. I came out way ahead on that deal. And um, I don't recommend it, but it was, it was, I was, I was in a bad spot. And one of the things that, that you said to me, Dennis, when we spoke before this, uh, since you brought up the subject of, of, of God and your, uh, and, and somewhat miraculous um, conception of, of, is you said that you had tried to run away from God and you ended up running to him unpack that a little bit for, for folks. Cause it's it, not, everybody goes through that. That's not for everybody per se, but in your particular case, it's interesting that there were two tragedies 
uh, two terrible tragedies. Um, but you have these bookends of I tried running away and then I ran too. What did that look like for you? Sure. I, you know, the strong Catholic upbringing helped. It really came in handy, complete with all the Catholic guilt that comes with it. <laughs> no, it was whole, it was good. <laughs> it was good. It was a solid foundation. So God was always on my mind. There were times I ran away, you know, like I can't do this. And, but I always came back. And, and for some reason, God always wins. <laughs> if you're going to get a wrestling match with God, he's going to win. He's going to pin you. Uh, he's going to humble you. And I felt extremely humbled after Matthew died. And the way God really stepped into the picture after Matthew was 16 years later, and everything's on God's timetable, not ours. 16 years later, he puts this little bug in my ear saying, tell the story about your brothers. And I was like, no, thank you, God. No, thank you at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take a hard yep. pass on that one, God. What else you got? <laughs> you know, eat that cheeseburger. That I'll do. Um, <laughs> so I spoke at a fundraiser uh, for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I got involved with those good folks. And I spoke for the first time publicly about my brothers. And it was awful. Five minutes. It was brutal. And I got through it. And I sat down and afterwards, a lady came up to me and said, you need to tell that story more often. And I said, oh, you just heard the one and done show. <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> but God kept saying, you know, maybe there's something here. Like in everybody who's listening, your crucible moment, maybe something's in there. Don't waste the pain. And I started speaking about my brothers after that. I got a call from a university that said, hey, we saw you at that walk, you know, that fundraiser. Can you come speak to our students and interns? And I bombed cried the whole time. Uh, they introduced me. I never heard myself introduced this way. Here's a guy who lost two brothers to suicide. I, you know, mm. that's something I never heard out loud until that day. And they go, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillen. I'm sitting there, you know, when they're introducing me, I'm going, oh, that poor guy. Who is that guy? And they said, oh, it's you. Crap. And then I just cried the whole time. So that didn't go very well. Then I got another call from a school that heard me speak at that school. And they said, hey, come down. And I only cried half the time. Hey, progress, right? Twice as good. Twice <laughs> as good, right? And then the third time, here's another word, session where God enters a chat. I went to a Baptist school here in uh, South Carolina, Charleston Southern University. And they said, before our speaker goes on, let's pray for him. And this woman got up and prayed for me. And I needed that. This room was packed. It was 220. The room held 220. There probably was 300 kids in there because it was part of convocation. They had to, they had to show up. <laughs> they had to get credit. And I love that. Normally when I speak or like on a campus or something, it's not voluntary. It's mandatory. You got to go. And they don't want to be there. And it, I love that audience because I walk into this hostile crowd and I'm going to wow them with this story. Um, but she prayed and that's exactly what I needed to hear. And from that night forward, I think, I had my calling. So I remember driving back and I brought my pastor with me and he said, he looked at me, he goes, you got to keep going. You got something here. You got to keep going, which I wish he would have said, uh, you kind of stink at this. You need to go back to your day job. And I'm like, all right, God was wrong. <laughs> so fast forward, I think, I think it was like 16 years after 94 or thereabouts to your talk at the American Society of Suicide Prevention. So, you know, I, I can relate in one small way. Sometimes when it's about your worst day, somebody says, do you want to talk about that? Relive my worst day, the pain, you've got to be nuts. And again, you know, I'm reminded of one of our very first podcasts on Beyond the Crucible. 
we interviewed a, a Navy SEAL that was paralyzed in a, in a training accident. He was like one of the best of the best. His dad was a Navy SEAL. Uh, and I said, look, what I went through is nothing compared to what you went through. And, you know, he stopped me. This is the guy who was paralyzed, the Navy SEAL, and said, you know what? Your worst day is your worst day. It's not a competition, not a comparison. Yeah. I've had, you know, we've interviewed quadriplegics, victims of abuse, you name it, all sorts of things. And they all have that view, which is amazing to me. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I guess, by way of analogy, I mean, there were people that said, you want to write about your story of losing this 150-year-old family business? said, there's no way. But then, you know, a little bit, maybe like you in a sense, in a small way, in 2008, I gave a talk in my church, uh, illustrate some sermon about what I went through. And yeah, I'm not Mr. Public Speaker, certainly not back then anyway. It was like 10 minutes or so. And afterwards, people said, you know, your talk really helped me. And I'm thinking, how many former media moguls are there in the, in the congregation? Like none. <laughs> Sadly, way too many people and families have suffered, you know, whether it's suicide or abuse, cancer. Uh, but it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should write a book about my story if I can help others. But I remember I couldn't do more than a couple hours a day because it was so painful reliving the memories and most of it was just my stupidity and my mistakes. It was so, it was, again, you can't compare pain, but I could imagine in some very small way, people saying, you know, Dennis, your story can help people. You're thinking, I don't care. <laughs> I am not talking about it. It's way too painful. How did you shift? People might've told you that for years, I'm guessing, leading up to 2000 or thereabouts. How did you actually decide to to speak about it, because it's not yeah. easy to talk about your, that kind of pain. It's a great, great analogy. Hey, take your worst day. Great. Let's make a career out of that. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, let's let's talk about that every day. Uh, no, it was interesting when I did that fundraiser for the uh, they call it AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It felt cathartic, you know, and, that, and there was a calling to do something. And then people would come up to you and say, you know, I appreciate that talk. You know, I'm going through some stuff here too. Uh, so basically our, our miseries have become our mission in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember uh, I sat down with this pastor, another guy, and I sat down with him and I said, I wasted all this time. 16 years, I just sat on my rear end and didn't speak about these guys. And I blew it. I blew it. I blew it. I could have done more, more, more. And he said, no, you were not ready. Those were your days in the desert. And what he was talking about is, you know, the Exodus, where they just yeah. ran around the day, not ready yet. You're not ready yet. You're not <laughs> ready yet. <laughs> okay, now <laughs> here's the promised land. And he was so right when he said that. I, I, I forgave myself for I, I wasn't ready. Interesting. Yeah, I guess as Dan is referring to Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they want to go to the promised land, but they made a few mistakes, which I guess the Bible calls uh, sin, lack of faith, and all sorts of other things. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, even Moses kind of wasn't good enough to make it to the promised land, but uh, he, he saw it, but never quite ended there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting when you, and you it's like, gosh, I, I could have done more. I could have done, uh, you know, earlier. And you use the word forgiveness, forgiving yourself. Why did you use that word? Because that's, because objectively it wasn't your fault what happened to either of your brothers. What do you mean by forgiveness? Well, with the suicide or death by suicide, there's a stigma that comes. It's not justified, but it just comes with it. Uh, you know, you know, 
what could you have done differently? Did you see it? Could you have called them? Could you have done this? Could you have done that? Um, and I, in addition to forgiving myself, I have to forgive my, Matt and Mark. I have no idea what they were going through at that, at that moment in time where that pain overrode their ability uh, to be resilient. What was happening right then and there? And we did uh, at one of these walks, they had this balloon release. And they said, Dennis, you got to go over and release this balloon. I'm like, I'm not doing that crap. You know, <laughs> such a guy, it's such a guy move. Like, I'm, right. not, I'm not doing that symbolism stuff. So my ex-wife at the time said, no, your team raised a lot of money. You got to go over there. So I went over there. They gave me a balloon. And I said, all right, just think about, you know, why we're here and all this stuff. And right before I released it, and this is where I, now I believe in this stuff. Like, you know, if you ever have yeah. something really bad happen, write a letter to that person and then burn it, even if you don't send it. But yeah. this symbolism of letting that balloon go, I said, Matt, Mark, I forgive you. And I let it go. And that was like a big turning point for me because I was so mad at those two. You know, I used to say to people, when I go to heaven, I don't know if I'm going to punch them or hug them. Just depends on the mood when I die, what's going to happen. <laughs> so, right. It was really interesting in, in, in that in that way. It's just now I believe in that stuff. And I also believe in what all three of us have shared, the vulnerability piece for guys. It's okay to not be okay. I, I want to make sure listeners hear what you just said, because it's so important. And we do talk about that on Beyond the Crucible is you go through a crucible. Sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's other people's fault. And you know, you have to forgive yourself. You know, we had a a woman uh, on the podcast, Stacey Kopas from Australia, and she became a quadriplegic by diving into an above ground pool. Now she was 12. Mm. Clearly it was quote unquote her fault. But when you're young, you feel like you're bulletproof and you ignore your parents and say, don't do it, don't do it, Stacey. So she battled substance abuse and it's like, why did I do this to myself? So she had to forgive herself. And again, you're young. It's objectively saying, look, come on, you know, young people do silly things. But, you know, for everybody that we've talked to, there is no way back from the pit, from your darkest moment without forgiveness. And you've got to forgive yourself. You've got to forgive others. Depends on the situation. I get how in your case it was, it was both. But, you know, because that's important. I mean, from my perspective, you know, God loves all of us. You know, life is a precious gift. And for God to use us in any way, shape, or form, we have to be able to forgive us and others. You know, life is too important. You can't help anybody else until you take care of yourself, which you've done, both in counseling and forgiveness. It's so important. So I want listeners to hear. So so we're at 2000, you're speaking. And I don't know if you mentioned off-air that do you view yourself as like this natural charismatic speaker that, hey, this is easy. I could speak anywhere, anytime, no notes. I mean, is that an easy thing or is that a, a challenging thing for you? Because most people hate speaking, to be honest. Well, God enters the chat again. I was, uh, <laughs> when I was looking for a new career and trying to settle in in Columbia, South Carolina, I started attending Toastmasters meetings. And Toastmasters is a, a group that trains you how to be a speaker. And I was not going to be a speaker. I was not good at it. I tried something at church one time and bombed. And, you know, my, my leg was shaking and my voice went real high. It was a capital campaign. I was like, my leg's shaking. I'm like, hey, we need money for the church. And I was like, whoa, what's happened to that dude? It would really be nice if you guys could help. 
And it, it was horrible. And I'm like, you know what? If I want to go somewhere, I got to learn how to speak publicly. So I started going to Toastmasters. Those wonderful people became my friends and started going every Friday morning at this little restaurant called Lizard's Thicket, get breakfast, do a couple speeches. And in a weird way, guy was preparing me going, listen, I got a plan for you. You don't know it yet. And then sure enough, now that when I speak, all those skills that I learned at those meetings where I was just going for a very selfish reason to make connections so I can get another job now are being used for this job. And it's, I've called on those a lot and and I'd like to think I'm a good speaker. The topic's tough, but there are times every time I go to speak, I have to peel away right in the beginning. I tell the people I'm working with, say, listen, I'm going to disappear for a little bit. And I go and pray. And just say, you know, is this what you want me to do? Because I'm about to do it. I'm going to tear up thinking about this. Like, God, is this what you want me to do? And I always hear it like, you know, get your butt on stage. Let's go. And then I come running back. And I'm like, here we go. Give me the microphone. Again, that's such an important lesson that I obviously wholeheartedly agree with. There is a phrase that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, whether you believe in God or some universal power, uh, when you just say like a you know, I'm going to do my best, but, you know, I'm scared. My, you know, knees are wobbling. God, you got to help me. And from my experience, he always does. And uh, if you go in there saying, I got it, you typically don't got it and it won't go well. You know, so when you go in and say, I don't got it, I'm scared. You're going to have to help me. And you're just being vulnerable and authentic. People yearn for that. And obviously you you do. And so that, I think it's so... You don't have to be Mr. or Mrs. Charismatic speaker to speak or really to do anything. You just got to say, look, I feel called to do this, so I'm going to do it. And then You can't teach passion. Exactly, Warren. You can't teach passion. If the person's passionate about it, it's going to come out. Whether they're a good speaker or not, you're going to feel it. And I've seen some really bad speakers who are really passionate about the cause. I'm like, I'm with them. I'm with them. I want to get to, obviously, Half the Sorrow Foundation and this wonderful phrase, purple file of this wonderful concept. But um, one of the things I've found, and I, I don't know whether you found, I'm guessing you probably have, is, you know, my book came out in October last year, October 2021, and I began speaking at young people and business groups. And, um, you know, I'm, you know, a pretty functional, healthy person. There are always scars when you go through tragedies. Uh, but when you have people say, you know, what, Warwick, your story really helped me, a young person, or boy, thank you. We call it a healing balm. There's some level of additional healing when somehow, I know everybody's heard this a million times, pain for a purpose. Somehow what you went through can help others. There is some additional level of healing. I mean, am I guessing you've probably found that, you know, when you speak and people say, you know, Dennis, thank you for sharing your story because that really has helped me. You know, have you found that in your own life? Oh, I've had some unbelievable God moments like that. Or I'll, I'll be done speaking at one school. I got done at eight o'clock. I got back to my car at ten thirty. People want to come up because you you you're showing them a weakness, which is actually your strength. You're vulnerable on stage, and then they want to share their vulnerability. And the first time it really happened to me was at this uh, huge. Um, sorority convention, 600 women in this room, which is kind of funny because I couldn't talk to one of them while I was in college. And now I got invited to talk to six <laughs> That's so funny. I couldn't wrap a sandwich, right? So I, I get invited <laughs> to speak to these women and I come down and grab my bag. I went up, got my 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 disc from the, uh, my files from the sound guy. And I come downstairs to grab my bag and leave. And there's a line of people waiting to speak to me. And that's never happened mm. before. I'm like, mm. okay you want to talk to me? And then, yeah, 
All right. So, so now I build that into my presentation. I, I stick around as long as they need me to stick around. And it's been very cathartic for me and them. Um, but once you share your pain, someone's going to share their pain with you. And it's, there's a kindred spirit in that, you know, the vulnerability piece that makes us all human. And we can use a lot more of that right about now. And uh, additional level of healing. So talk about, before we get to purple fire, I love that phrase, half a sorrow foundation. Talk about the origin of that name. Where's that come from? Sure. I, I believe it's a Swedish proverb. And I was thinking about doing this foundation. Someone gave me the advice. I, I crowdsourced it on Facebook. I said, hey, guys, what would you do if you were naming a foundation? And one guy, a good fraternity friend of mine, David Mulgard, said, don't name it after your brothers. And because everybody else was doing Matt, Mark, Mark, Matt, they're sure. doing all kind yeah. of variations. And I sat there like, huh, that's interesting. And then I always had this thing in my talk where I talk about a shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And it resonates with the audience. That's the proverb, mm. the Swedish proverb. And I was like, that thing hits home. So I started to think about it. And I said, you know what? The half a sorrow foundation. Because that thing about floored me when I heard it. And it took me forever. You know, I might've heard it when I was a kid. I might've heard it in school. But when I heard it, when I was driving in my car, age 50, after burying two brothers, like that meant, you know, thinking about my speaking career, that thing meant all the world to me. A shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And, you, and you've lived that, right? It, 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 it does lessen the agony of the sorrow, at least a little bit, by sharing it, right? Absolutely. And I say in the talk, I say well, a half of a half of a half of a half. I will never get to zero. Right. And that's okay, because my brothers meant something to me. I don't want to get to zero. If I get to zero, we better check for a pulse. You know, <laughs> it's my time. I turn around the Grim Reapers behind me like, yeah, it's time. You know, it's... I'll always have those guys with me. So talk about what the foundation does, just so that listeners can understand. Sure, we are. We had a lot of programs that were focused on gathering, and then COVID took care of that. We were doing this men's thing, this men's breakfast, you know, trying to get men right. together. Again, that's my thing with mental health. Yeah. I do a men's night at the local tennis center, you know, and we do a little talk about mental health. Then we go out and play, because that's how guys talk. They don't talk about stuff like one-on-one. -on -one. They'll talk like while shooting basketball or playing ping pong. That's how we talk. Um, right. And the, the genesis of the foundation was to go to schools that can't afford me. You know, I'm not going to get rich doing this, but I, I had a call from a kid in Texas one time and they wanted me to come down there. And this is before the foundation existed and we couldn't make it work. Budgets, flights, you know, all that, we just couldn't do it. And I had to say no to them. And I remember I was crying after the call. Like I never said no to anybody. And that was the first time I had to say no. And I said, wow, if I, I had a foundation that could pay the way. So if this kid ever calls back, I have two questions for him. One, what time and what do I wear? Because I'm coming because the foundation will cover the cost. That's where it started. That's awesome. And speaking about where it started, uh, Gary mentioned to me and uh, is, you know, in honor of uh, you, he's wearing a purple maybe it's burgundy uh jacket it is burgundy, for those. just to be a, it's not beautiful. the joker i'm uh, i love this concept of a purple file that all in all seriousness i think can be so helpful talk about what that is and why that is so important for people especially when they're not feeling that great about life for themselves what is a purple file work and, and gary what happened with that was people would write me notes every now and then i'm like how do i capture this how do I, you know, so I started printing them out and shoving them in this little file. And here's, it's kind of a selfish reason again, everything's about me, but I thought one day when I die, my kids will find this file and go, oh my gosh, daddy touched some people. You know, I have two boys, Martin and Brendan. Sorry. 
But little did I know that I need the file right now because there are some days I feel like quitting this job. Like, oh my gosh, how much can a man take? Then I go back to the file and it's a living, breathing doc, you know, file. It's behind me in my office right now. I brought it here. Um, I will open it up and I'll start reading some of the letters that people sent after the talk. And that rejuvenates me. I'm like, all right, stay on focus, Dennis. It's a bad day today, but it's, you know, we got this. We got this. Keep going. So it's a, it's a, it's a real source of determination for me. And I think everybody should have a purple file. Just a couple notes, something you got from someone who said, who believed in you, who saw something in you that you did not see in yourself. And I print it out and I read it. I'm old school. I print it. If you have a desktop icon, just call it the purple file. And anyone sends you a nice email for work, you pop it in there. You pop it in there. So it came out to be like a little brag book, but we don't like to brag. It's a, more of an inspiration file than anything. And I want to bring this to... Uh... You know, I want to emphasize to listeners how powerful this is. I just, I found out about this. I found out about Dennis. Uh, the current issue that's out right now as we're recording this of Entrepreneur Magazine, he has a column that he uh, he wrote in the in the front of the magazine, short column, um, uh, where he talks about the file and, and it, what exactly what he just said. This here's a quote from Dennis's column: "When I consider quitting, I grab the file and come back with renewed determination." Uh, and then he says, "Do you have a similar file?" It didn't take me. I mean, I was in bed reading this, and I already started pulling things together before I went to sleep that night. And I just want to bring this home to listeners about the kinds of things that can go in there and the kind. That, that do exactly what Dennis talks about. In my day job, when I'm not co-hosting this show, I am a public relations guy. That's what I do. My job is to get clients coverage in the media. That's not the easiest thing to do. Sometimes you pitch clients to go in the media and the media doesn't want to feature them. That can be those moments that, that you just described, Dennis, where you just kind of want to quit or like, why am I doing this? I'm banging my head against the wall. It's not working. I'm going to read a, a short note that I have in my purple file inspired by your article in Entrepreneur that on those days, I had it on my wall, still do. I made a photocopy for the file, but this is what it says. It's from June 2018. And this is a, a, a letter written to me by two people I represented pro bono who's eldest son murdered their two youngest children. Okay. So let that sink in and the kind of sorrow that they were going through. Media was very interested in wanting to talk to them. They went to church where I used to go to church in Colorado Springs. The pastor at my old church connected me with them and I represented them to the media, got some coverage of their hearts to make sure that, that they got treated fairly. This is what they wrote to me in June, 2018. Gary, thank you from the depths of our hearts for your strong support in us. Your guidance and counsel has literally saved us from much more pain and confusion in a world where we feel lost and blind. You became our eyes and voice in the media and public. You have become our friend. Thank you for always listening, always praying, always encouraging us into Christ. We are eternally grateful to you, truly. Don't give up doing what you do in PR, unless God tells you, parentheses, because you mean a lot. Your value and worth is remarkable. It's priceless. Your passion is beautiful and inspiring. We are so beyond blessed to call you friend. Gary, we love you and thank you in the name of the Father, God, and Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no wow. journalist 
on the face of the planet who's going to tell me no when I pitch Warwick or somebody else that's going to win my head and heart into a bad place when I've got something like this that I have in this inspired by you, Dennis, purple file. That's the power of having a purple file. Well, thank you for sharing that, Karen. That is, just, that is just so, so powerful. I want listeners, again, if you haven't got it already, you, you should listen carefully. I don't have a purple file yet, but conceptually, as I think back, you know, in our dark days, having those messages of hope, I remember when the company went under, and I do have a file with this, people would write me letters. These are people I didn't know, you know readers of the main paper we had, Sydney Morning Herald, and I had people, you know, just somewhere in Sydney or elsewhere, it's like, you don't know me, but, you know, I'm so sorry what happened, you know, the company going under, we're praying for you. And I've got a bunch of these letters of people, I don't know who they are. I've never met them, probably never will. It's like, you know, wow, I mean, now that I'm speaking, you have people come up and and say things, which is very heartwarming. Uh, I did a podcast, a Harvard Business School alumni podcast. I had a couple of messages right after a guy saying, yep, I'm some, you know, private equity guy. And I just found out that, you know, my sort of $100 million company is going under, you know, today. I don't know what I'm going to tell my wife and kids and, you know, sort of lost everything and thank you. I mean, those things, they mean um, those words of encouragement during our dark days. You know, one of the things that we do it's not at the same level as the purple file, but it's a family thing we do. Is every birthday uh, we go around, and I have two adult sons and a daughter in the middle, and we go around and, and say, you know, what is it we admire about, you know, whoever it is? And I've got two of my kids are writers, and so in addition to what they say verbally, they write cards, typically paragraphs. So I mean, I have those things over the years, and just that sort of love and affirmation from your kids. It's one thing to say, I love you, Dad, which is great, but I love you because A, B, C, D, E, F, mm-hmm. you know, in oh, great yeah. detail. Uh, so, yeah, during our dark days, those are what I call drops of grace. Everything is uh, spiritual for me, so I think, you know, thank you, Lord, for those drops of grace, those affirmations that say, hey, I'm not perfect, but thank you for that encouragement because it helps us get through those dark days. You know, if you believe in light and dark and you know we're studying spiritual warfare in our church at the moment which is certainly not my favorite subject at all but if you believe there is a battle there between good and evil which most religions say when those dark thoughts come you know prayer reading your bible whatever it is but also remembering the affirmations from people those are also i think tools from above to help us sustain those dark days so purple file if you don't have one yet Make one physically, virtually. Uh, don't forget those good words in those dark days. So, so important. So thank you and so much. Let me much. jump in and add, and add one more thing here before the captain gets on the <laughs> microphone here. Um, because I want to ask you this question, Dennis, and it goes in exactly what Warwick was talking about, about the importance of affirmation and, and why the Purple File is so powerful for people. You made, and you said this phrase a couple of times when you were speaking about um, Mark and Matthew uh, and how they passed. Um, you talked about how the disease state won. That's what led to them 
you know, to their deaths, the disease state one. Is it fair to say that a purple file, those kinds of affirmations that that point out the things that you do right, that point out why you should keep going, that th- those are some of the things that you can use to keep the disease state from winning? I totally believe that. You know, great point, Gary and Mark. Thank you for sharing that you're going to have a purple file soon because you got enough content already. I think that's, you know, it's part of your self-care plan. You know, self-care is not selfish. That's like a buzzword in the industry, but we got to take care of ourselves. And I think the purple file is a great way to do that. If you're feeling down and out and you've got this file of people that believe in you and wrote stuff. Yeah. Grab it. That's part of your recovery process. You know, let's keep exactly what you said, Gary, keep the disease at bay. That's, you know, the purple file started out, you know, my brag book, you know, think much of yourself, Dennis, it's not become like a self-care book. You know, hey, Dennis, keep going, man. This, these people, they have faith in you. You may not have the faith right now, but those folks in that file do. And Gary, that letter you have for that pro bono work you did for that family, nobody's going to tell you no and ruin your day now. It's Absolutely not going to happen. Not, not going to nope, happen. Never. They don't, they don't own your headspace because that letter is taking up all that headspace and it should. It's awesome. That sound you heard, listener, was uh, not just uh, Dennis making a good point at the end of his sentence, but it was the sound of the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign, which indicates uh, we're going to have to land the plane here in a bit. Before we do that, though, uh, I would be remiss, Dennis, if I did not give you the chance to let listeners know how they can learn more about the Half a Sorrow Foundation, more about your speaking, more about you. Sure, I am... uh... Transitioning between two websites. I have one that's my name, DennisGillen.com. Not Gillian, right? It's Dennis G-I-L-L-A-N. That's right. And you've you've had experiences spelling your last name. I get it. <laughs> uh, so we're going from that one to the halfasara.org. That's where we're going. You know, it's funny, I was doing all my speaking under my own business, and you know what? It's bigger than me. So we're gonna create a foundation so I can actually get other speakers, do more programming. So I'm migrating. I love the Dennis Gillen site. It has my TEDx talk on there. We moved a lot of that stuff over to the halfasaro.org site. And you can see my TEDx talk on both of those now. But uh, that's where we're going. That's where you get a hold of me. I do monitor both of them and all the emails that come in, request to speak and all that good stuff. And it's it's been quite the journey. And I'm looking forward to many more years of this. So And, and run into guys like you. You know, we put an article out there, an entrepreneur, I hope somebody reads it. And next thing you know, a week later, I'm on a podcast talking to two guys who you know, have had similar trials and tribulations. And in the end, we all have them. So I thank you both for bringing me on. Warwick, the last question or questions are yours. Well, thank you, Dennis, for so much. I really appreciate your message of hope. And as we close, you know, there might be some people listening today they might have had family members who've committed suicide. Uh, I hope and pray this is not the case. Maybe there are some folks that have had those thoughts. Maybe it's not suicide. Maybe they've just, today is a horrendous day because of what somebody did to them or tragedy, maybe mistakes they've made. What would a message of hope that you would give listeners who today, they might feel like today's their worst day? What message of hope would you offer them? You know, I had really bad worst days and everyone did like i said earlier we don't want to compare the trauma olympics Mm -hmm. your worst day is your worst day but i'm here to tell you better days are coming and it sounds trite but i i couldn't see out of you know out of that darkness when matthew died i couldn't see it you know there were days if i got up by noon that was a good day you know 
We started the day, oh, I'm up by noon. I get it. I get in that dark place. And it's, what's that old poem in the valleys that I grow? Believe it or not, let the grief do its work. Whatever you're grieving, let it do its work. And what I, hopefully this work, when it's completed, you'll come out the other side, a more compassionate human being. I feel everything now. The highest highs, the lowest lows. I feel them all and I'd have it no other way. Before I try to numb all that stuff. When Mark died, I try to numb feeling, you know, the lows, but I end up numbing the highs. I, I numbed it all. Suicide is not an option. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from the heart about this. I'm going to cry thinking about this. It's a horrible option because I, you know, and I'm, you heard on the podcast what it did to me and my family. It wrecked us. Let's be honest, you know, for years and, and going forward, we, we, we recovered sort of, um, and we're still on this journey by the grace of God. But if I could tell you, this is anything, just take that one off the table. Just take that one off the table. Sorry. That's not an option. Now you pop in your head, you can chase it out. And sometimes the purple file helps you chase it out too. If you go look at a note, chase it out and let's, let's, let's stick around see where this thing ends up. And typically, you know, you, on this podcast, you've heard crucible moments. People will say that was the worst day of your life. Yeah. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it changed me into a better person. I've heard that a million times. Would you change anything about that day? No, I wouldn't change a thing about that day because of who I am now. Take the suicide off the table, push it aside, stay with us. And time does have an amazing way of healing. But when you, when you die by suicide, you throw away your best ally time. Stay with us. It is, um, it's a wonderful problem to have when the guest takes your job of closing the show. Dennis, that was a perfect summary of not just our discussion today, but what we talk about at Beyond the Crucible all the time. And that is uh, that crucible experiences are extraordinarily painful, but they're not the end of your story. You learn the lessons from them. You you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, keep moving forward. And um, far from the end of your story, they can become the beginning of a, of a new story that leads to uh, unimaginable joy and fulfillment. Um, I believe I can speak for you when I say I think you feel that right now yourself. That's 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 where you're at. You've learned the lessons of what happened and you uh, are living uh, your best life. Um, that's what we hope for all of you listeners. So until the next time we're together, do remember that your crucible experiences aren't the end of your story, that they are the beginning of a new story that can be the best story of your life, because at the end of that story, where the GPS is set to when you take that journey is what we call here at Crucible Leadership, a life of significance. Mm -hmm.